Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Science, the show that breaks down the science of television and movies with a comedian and a scientist. Today we're discussing John Carter, so I'll ask about Mars, solar power, and how far each of our guests can jump. But first, a short word from our sponsor. The Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Ethan Edinburgh, and I've got three wonderful guests joining me today. Our first two guests are actors, writers, and together they're in a comedy pop duo called Schmab. Welcome to the show, Adam Cheskin and Carolyn Janya. Hey! Thanks for having us. Oh, my God. Thanks for being here. How are you both? Fantastic. Never been better. How are you? I'm doing great, although I did just watch John Carter. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Ditto. Ex mama. Did did either of you like had you seen this movie before? Did you watch it just for the pod? And did you watch it together? We did watch it together just last night, so it's nice and fresh. Mm-hmm. Never Great. had I seen it before. No. We ordered Chinese food and got drunk and watched this movie. And we're filled with wow. rage. Yeah, and I don't know at one point if it was the food poisoning from the Chinese food or if the movie was that bad. I felt nauseous a couple times. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Well, I hope that uh, you guys feel better during the record. Oh, um, I will Already. say it does sound like it does sound like the best way to watch this movie because I watched it like alone without any food or alcohol and Oof. I feel like that was a mistake. Like you guys kind of nailed it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we had warning though. We had warning. Yeah. So it's okay. Helping us dissect this uh, wild, wild film is our second guest. He is uh, a Fisher professor of natural history and a professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. Oh my gosh. Welcome to the show, Dr. Andrew H. Knoll. Hey, Ethan, how are you? I'm good, Andy, as you requested to be called. I'm not just uh, making a nickname up for you. Um, what What about you, Andy? Have you seen uh, John Carter before or did you watch it for the pod? No, I watched it for the pod. Um, the reason I chose it was because it was written by a guy named Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, and in 1912, he wrote two books. One was A Princess of Mars, which is now ingloriously tuned into our minds forever as John Carter. And the other was a little thing called Tarzan of the Apes. And oh, since wow. I was just a great Tarzan fan as a kid, I thought, well, maybe this would be interesting to see. Yeah, well, you were absolutely right. It was very interesting. Um, I, I immediately saw online, by the way, that it was based on that book and that people were like up in arms that they changed the name to John Carter, which sounds like totally bland. And yet that like a princess of Mars sounds kind of interesting and fun. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I've seen a lot of commentary on the internet. It, it's by that uh, valiant group of people who think this is a great movie. And so a lot of that stuff is really trying to understand why such a wonderful, spectacular movie could have lost $300 million. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty penny. But before we jump into John Carter, I, I have to jump into your career a little bit because I was fascinated looking looking you up, Andy. Um, for the past decade, you've served on the science team for NASA's uh, <gasps> MER mission to Mars. What? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I've spent 
basically my whole professional life trying to understand the history of our own planet by looking at rocks, basically geology. And when uh, NASA was planning for the, the MIR mission, very kindly they said, well, you know, we need a couple people who understand how to read rocks. Can, can you join us? And it's kind of like, yeah, sure, why not? And so that, <laughs> that took over my life for a number of years. But, you know, what a, what a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, were you able to decode some of these rocks and, and give them intel, Mar Martian intel? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the great thing is that uh, despite the jumping skills of John Carter, physics and chemistry work a lot on Mars the way they do on Earth. So, you know, having spent a lot of time looking at how rocks accumulate on Earth, you can use those to tell the same stories on another planet, which is kind of fun. Okay, fascinating. And then, and so you've quit that mission now? You told them, I've had enough, leave me alone. And Well, um, the, the rovers quit the mission before anyone else did. So uh, that, that mission actually worked for about seven, or 14 years. And wow. then the rovers, which were designed for something like uh, you know, 90 days of operation, <laughs> finally, finally gave up the ghost. But, it, you know, it was really, in, in some ways, one of our first chances to sort of get up close and personal with the geology of another planet. And there have been more missions since then. But, you know, we know so much more about Mars today than we did, you know, even 20 years ago. It's pretty astounding. Wow, unbelievable. And and I should also mention you are an author of some award-winning books such as A Brief History of Earth and Life on a Young Planet. Um and and this comes up from time to time on the podcast. Uh we we live in a geologically unusual time where our planet is like changing rapidly nowadays. Um and so your work has a lot to do with how this has panned out in the past, I've noticed. So I was curious what this time says about our near future. Yeah, uh, thanks for asking that, because it, it turns out that knowing the deep history of our planet really provides a context for understanding the 21st century. And, and as you said, we live at a time that is unusual on the scale of our planet's whole history. The, the Earth is changing faster today than it has at most times in the past. And this won't make you feel any better, but the only times in the past 500 million years when Earth has changed at comparably rapid rates, uh, it has been bad news for life. When you say bad news, <laughs> uh, what, what does that entail? Well, really bad. Um, you know, two, 252 million years ago, there was volcanism a million times greater than anything ever seen by a human. You know, it put CO2 into the atmosphere, made ocean acidification, you know, all the things that you read about in the paper today. And when that was over, about 90% of the species were gone. Wow. Wow. So, so it is bad news. Really bad news. Oh. This, is a, this is a mass extinction event you're describing yes yeah and, and i'm not the first person to say this i think the among scientists there is genuine concern for what uh the planet will look like at the end of this century and and you know it's not a matter of will we be able to conserve all species but how much 
and through what effort will we be able to conserve for our grandchildren, you know, the kind of things that we take for granted today. And Adam and Carolyn, are you guys concerned about this stuff or, you know? Well, uh, Carolyn was just dabbing her armpits because she's sweating already. So Yeah, climate change is real. Oh, it's scary. Yeah. I did want to mention, Dr. Andy, that I went to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. So I do feel as though this is a meeting of the minds. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah. that's we cool, get, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, don't you guys are peers. To, yeah, we are. We definitely are. So, um, wow, that is very concerning, though. Yeah, it makes me feel a little bit better about, like, my uh, procrastination guilt. How so? Mm-hmm. Well, in that, like, you know, if we're all going to be oh, potentially yeah. gone, then, yeah. like... Hey, that's a good perspective. You know, yeah, I don't have to take out the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Delete your existential crisis, because yeah. it's like, oh, well, whatever. We're all going to die via volcano pretty I soon. Guess. So, I guess, yeah. whatever. She's coming for yeah. us. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, well. Um, yeah, so that's some, that's some scary stuff for sure. Um, and... I, I read that there's been five already mass extinction events on this planet. Um, so I wanted to ask you if that was true. And and yeah, exactly kind of what we're talking about, like how pessimistic or optimistic are you? Because, you know, whenever we get into the destruction of the environment on the show, it's, you know, we laugh about it, we make jokes, but it's, it's hard to remain optimistic. Um, so if you are, how, how do you stay in that mindset knowing what you know? Well, let, let's get to the first question first. Yeah, there have been five times in the past when the geologic record documents mass extinctions, that is where a majority of species disappear in a short time. There have been various causes, um, but the cause of environmental change today is us. You know, it's the old Pogo thing. We have met the enemy and and he is us. Uh, So what gives me at least some optimism is that since we are the cause of 21st century global change uh, with the will to do so, we can be the the solution. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's going to take, you know, some real sort of national commitment which you know everybody's been complaining about you know the heat wave of of the last week you know 110 degrees in seattle and things Mm -hmm. like this and i was just thinking hey maybe this will get some people's attention uh you know the fact that the the southwest is just drying up Mm -hmm. seriously so you know if that doesn't get your attention there's something wrong yeah well, I think there is something wrong. Uh, <laughs> I mean, really, really wrong. I, I'm. I, it's tough. I, I'm very pessimistic. I'm, I'm a happy-go-lucky guy, but when it comes to the fate of the human race, it's really tough to to be hopeful because I just assume we don't act until it's too late. It seems like that has been the pattern now for I don't know, like a hundred years at least, where it's like the only time that we band together is when it's, you know, dire straits. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, you know, there has been this pushback from various quarters that say, well, this is expensive, uh, largely because their economics doesn't factor in what the cost of doing nothing is. And that's mm-hmm. right. huge. So, yeah, you know, I unfortunately, or fortunately, I suppose, I don't think the human race 
is is in trouble but uh everything we see around us is is going to change and we're just going to have to either change our ways and and limit those changes or drastically change our ways to accommodate what's happening mm. okay so when we come back from this break dr andy is going to outline exactly what we have to do to change our environment and save the planet <laughs> <laughs> is over here we go back to the show about science we're back and we have a really easy task here uh for dr andy um because i i again i do try to remain optimistic and if there's anything that we can do to save the planet big or small i'd love to give that information out so you know besides uh overpopulation potentially being solved which i know is really dark uh, what what are things that we can do to to slow down or remedy this this dire situation we're in? Well, th there's a bunch of things, and they range from things you can do as an individual. Uh, for example, you can make choices. You can buy a, an, an electric or a, a hybrid car. You can choose to uh, live in a place that has uh, good temperature control, and there are ways of of doing that that will save the use of, of uh, electricity and fossil fuels for heating and cooling. Uh, you can buy more of your foods locally because there's a, a mm -hmm. big carbon use in uh, just transporting foodstuffs. And then there are things that, that are going to take a couple of geniuses and some uh, commitment, which is uh, th there actually are sort of pilot programs to scrub carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and and they work but on a very local scale it's expensive and it it isn't quite ready yet to ramp up to you know a, a global mission but you know i i think that we we can get there so i think everybody can do small things that you know if eight billion people do small things that ends up to something being something fairly large and there are things that uh governments and and industry have to do that that's probably the most deterring or just depressing aspect of it for me is when i actually hear politicians at least in the united states uh speak about this because a lot of them don't believe in climate change for example and it's really it really hurts it really hurts my somewhere in my rib cage i get a, a, a pain a cramp yeah right mm -hmm. it's concerning that someone like greta thurnberg who is a, a kid you know is more knowledgeable and wants to take action more and gets on into twitter wars with politicians that are elected officials it's like Oh, the children are our future. Thank God for Greta. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would elect yeah, her. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we get more people like her in positions of power. Jeez Louise. Please. Um, oh, so f getting back to the movie and I guess entertainment industry in general, I did want to ask if you have ever consulted on a film or a TV series. It seems like you'd kind of be the perfect guy. Uh, the, the only thing I ever did, and it was great fun is that uh, a director I really like, Terry Malick, uh, mm. has oh, had yeah. this dream for years of producing a film on, you know, the history history of life. And so uh, over a number of years, I would 
talk to, to Terry and that and he actually has made uh, a film uh, it's very Malick-esque you know in that it's very philosophical and all this you have the voice of Brad Pitt sort of going over these miraculous pictures of volcanoes and and, and the like and 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 that was r really fun like I, said, I think it, it was fun largely because Terry is such a creative interesting guy and and he wanted you know he knew that David Attenborough can produce a perfectly fine factual narrative of you know the history of vertebrates and that kind of thing so Terry really wanted to do something more philosophical and aesthetic and uh, while I don't think the movie's yet been widely seen it's it's really powerful it's really quite amazing yeah, I believe you're referring to the Tree of Life. Yeah. Well, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> it's interesting. the The Tree of Life, of course, is a is a family story with this sort of odd uh, two minute interlude with dinosaurs in the middle. <laughs> uh, and and I must say that uh, the only time in the history of cinema where if you scroll through the uh, credits at the end, you know, right before they say this was filmed on Codalux film, there's a, a, a shout out thanking me. Uh, hey. I'm actually talking about right. something called A, a Voyage in, t in Time, Ooh. which he has made as a, uh, what do you call it, one of these 3D kind of, of movies and that. So, uh, uh, like I say, it, it had very limited release when he first did it. Um, hopefully, we'll see it more widely in the future. Okay, yeah, I'm looking nice. it up right Amazing. now. Uh, I think you can see it in IMAX in certain yes, locations. Yes, that's, that's right. Oh, I bet that would be amazing. Yeah, this sounds awesome. No, it's, a, it's a real trip. It, it, it is awesome, yeah. <laughs> okay, sweet. So, okay, I'm so glad that I asked. I knew somebody would have uh, contacted you for some project. Um Great. Okay. Well, everyone should go see both of those, obviously. But today, we're not talking about Terrence Malick, your buddy Terry. We're talking about John Carter, <laughs> a movie that I would love to summarize the plot of, but I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know if you uh, if you guys want to help me in case people haven't seen it. Uh, if you got if you want to give the the schmab uh, rundown. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll, yeah. I'll try. Oh, okay, great. Knock it out the park. Yeah, Ethan, we got this. We got this. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> oh, John Carter. Where to begin? Yeah. It starts on Mars. It starts on, it starts on Mars on a spaceship that looks like a lobster. Yeah, with McNulty from The Wire <laughs> yep. manning the helm. All of a sudden, you're back and it's 1881. <laughs> And you might be in England, but maybe you're maybe you're in New York, <laughs> City. In York City. I thought Arizona. I mm -hmm. don't know. And then you're in Arizona. Yes. And then, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then you're back on Mars. <laughs> and, I gotta uh, say, I, I'm gonna pause you there for a second because it did bug me how they kind of like set up the movie like three different times, and it was yeah. really confusing for me, right? Because he's like. First, there's a narrator, by the way, right. and then you never hear from him again. Right. And then <laughs> Who needs him? John Carter is the narrator, and he like writes a letter. And so all of a sudden, like you think you're just following John Carter in the movie, but then no, it's actually his nephew who's reading a journal of John Carter. So anyways, <laughs> yep. I, it, the way that it started out, I was like, why did this movie just start four times? Exactly Great right. Great point. Yeah, exactly Great point. right. Mm -hmm. Jarring. Yeah. And then there's a lot of Michigas in the middle, and then it ends <laughs> back <laughs> in uh, 
you're Air- back in Arizona or in New York by a tomb that we've been told only opens from the inside, even though the way it opens is from the outside. Yes. And I think that's the whole movie. Very easily. Yeah. Just N-E-D. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Yeah, if anybody were to touch, I was thinking about that too. If anybody were to like touch those letters on the tomb, you would hear a clicking sound. Like yeah. clearly there's some sort of locking mm-hmm. mechanism here. Yeah. God, so uh, funny. And so and, that's the movie. Yeah, it basically, he, he transports via some artifact, uh, I don't know what to call it. A brooch. Um, <laughs> it was perfect very approach. much a brooch. I think it's a big old brooch. <laughs> He's got this uh, wormhole brooch and it takes him to Mars. And then as soon as he's on Mars, I had like nine questions. And I I don't know if this bothered you guys. I don't know if this bothered you, Dr. Andy. But number one, obviously, they even say, I think, in the narration that there's no air or no life on Mars. Or like that's what we previously thought. And that actually there is air and life on Mars. Mm -hmm. And so that was weird and confusing because as soon as he gets there, he can breathe uh, totally fine. So, So maybe let's squash that first because I assume there is no chance he would survive more than 60 seconds on the surface of Mars. Yeah, the the problem is that John Carter is caught in a time warp. Um, You know, today... I think we all agree that, you know, Mars is this tremendously cold, dry, atmosphere-free planet, and you're right. Uh, it's, you know, not a high probability of meeting someone like yourself up there. Um, on the other hand, when Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote this book, a lot of people uh, thought highly of uh, some books written by an American astronomer called Percival Lowell, in which he said he could actually see, through his superior eyesight looking through telescopes, canals on Mars. And those canals were actually providing glacial meltwater from the poles to part civilizations. And he had this whole, you know, series of books on, you know, the, the civilization on on Mars. And of course, that you know, is tied into a number of books at the time, you know, like War of the Worlds and things like that, where they come to see us rather than vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that unfortunately or fortunately was a, a way of looking at the world that, that disappeared. So when you, when you see John Carter, you know, in 2021, it, it just seems suspended between old and new ways of, of looking at the planet and doesn't particularly satisfy either one of them. Right. Well, right. that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I wonder why they didn't make a um, creative choice about that, like having the um, kingdoms or the cities exist like underground. Like, would that have been... Uh, is there an yeah. argument to be made like that, like, yeah, like that beneath Mars's surface, there could be some life-sustaining um, atmosphere that exists? Like, is that well, a thing? I don't know what I'm talking wasn't about. There, didn't they find ice on Mars, or is that? Yeah, like- there's there, there's ice, so there's there's probably water at depth. Um, so yeah, they go. they could have done a lot of things, and again, it. Edgar Rice Burroughs would not have done those. So the people who made the movie. Oh right would have to say, okay, we're going to part, part company 
with mm. Burroughs's narrative, and mm. you know, it, it's not a crazy choice to say no. We're just going to tell the story that that Burroughs told. Um, yeah. But if you're going to do that, you have to do it in, I think, a sort of knowing way. Right. Yeah, which they pretty much skipped over. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, they end up skipping over a lot. It, it, it turns out that. Uh, academic that I am, I did actually go back and read A Princess of Mars, oh. uh, just because I wanted to see what it was about. And it's, you know, I, I must admit, when I finished it, I thought, you know, how could I possibly have loved Tarzan books when I was a kid? This thing is not that well written. So I actually <laughs> went back and read Tarzan of the Apes, and that's actually very well written. <laughs> oh and, my gosh. But it, 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 it is a funny book, but it does introduce a, a lot of things that are just elided in the movie, so you just don't get explanation. Things just come out of nowhere in the movie, mm-hmm. and without explanation, and that that just makes it harder to follow, just as a story. Mm. Yeah, I I definitely had a hard time following the story, especially because of the names of everything. And and listen, you're an academic, I'm a schmuck, so <laughs> you know maybe we have a different experience with this. But you know all the Tars something or other and Zadanga and I, I was just like I don't even know. Sometimes I didn't know who the good guys were. I got to be honest with you. Yep. I agree. Yeah, it, it it's hard. Um, and they and 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 in fairness to Andrew Stanton. Part of the problem is the book, and part of the problem is, you know, what what do you, you make of the book? But I got to mm. give, uh, again, it goes back to Edgar Rice Burroughs. One of the things he knew scientifically was that the pull of gravity by Mars was smaller than it is on Earth, so that John Carter, but surprisingly not the native Martians, uh, could actually <laughs> yeah. jump higher and farther than he could on Earth. Now, it, it, it turns out that if you can jump two feet high on Earth, you can maybe do three feet on Mars, whereas, of course, John Carter is like uh, Peter Pan. He just goes up and flits around in the atmosphere. and Air So that's kind of a... Yeah, it's it's the right idea, the wrong uh, scale, if you will. Huge, yeah, huge yeah. leaps. Wow. Yeah, uh, that was my biggest question. Yeah, let's let's get into uh, Carolyn's biggest question <laughs> right after the break because I have about nineteen jump issues. <laughs> the break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. Okay, we're back. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to start this one off, uh, Carolyn. I, this, was, this was basically, I, I, as you said, kind of the biggest issue with the movie is that he basically gets a superpower mm-hmm. on Mars where he's able to jump extreme distances. <laughs> yes, and I think I'd like to know, I am a normal jumper. I, I jump the normal amount anyone does I've seen you jump Earth. a lot and it's normal <laughs> so it's if so I normal to, uh-huh. <laughs> if I were to wake up on Mars would I be able to jump leap as high as uh, our friend John Carter no 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 that that's 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 the thing so uh, you could jump a little bit higher uh, a little bit longer but it would not rescue you from the Tharks <laughs> mm, all right good right. to know <laughs> That was my concern. Was the first part a little more accurate? Because when he just gets there, 
he's he is doing like kind of little leaps like kind of what we see from you know when people are on the moon right like mm. there's just less gravity so he's kind of doing these kind of mini jumps um so what about that part was that a little bit more accurate yeah you know i think if if any one of us were on mars it would take some getting used to um but you know so so that part works pretty well it's when he starts uh you know jumping 150 meters in every direction that right. it sort of parts company from reality yeah was not ex explained either which bothered me that he was pretty quickly able to i don't know learn to jump and just able to like jump like the length of buildings of essentially and yeah. he jumped across a city <laughs> and so fast too like that was another weird thing where it's like why i don't know like wouldn't he be floating around even if the gravity oh. was less wouldn't it wouldn't it you know what i mean take time for him to get from place to place he was he was moving the guy was zooming around yeah yeah well no you made a really good point i think you know if if any of us were designing those scenes the first thing we'd probably do is look at some of the apollo astronauts and right. and see what they did um and and i think you're right that that probably was behind those sort of first timid steps that he takes but um you know after that anything goes was that in the book did he what did he describe somebody you know basically supermaning around mars yeah yeah in fact that's that's key to the book in that you know here is this guy who's obviously smaller weaker uh than all these native martians he doesn't have any weapons uh and they're all nasties so uh when he finds that he can leap then that actually redresses the balance in in the strength of their forces and it, it is behind he becomes kind of a hero of mars among the tharks because he is such a good warrior and can beat the bejesus out of the tharks enemies i i would like to point out though in the flashback when he's arrested by brian cranston he does from a seated position leap across a desk and out of a window so i'm going to take that as proof that he has special jumping abilities like 50 yard dash i bet he mm. was gold medal champion yeah, in high yeah. school he must have had special <laughs> abilities on earth too oh my gosh. that's my proof okay so now this movie's brilliant <laughs> yep we solved it we cracked it uh -huh. yes leapt through a window I, into a jail cell. It's true. I have a question. Is there a planet where that kind of um, relationship to gravity would exist? Like, is could you jump like that on Jupiter or Pluto, RIP? <laughs> it's back. Pluto's well, back. I think Pluto's in back. Jupiter is, is really tough because it's mostly gas. Mm -hmm. So uh, you would just sink into the middle of it and die. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, you know, short I, movie. I, yeah. <laughs> Princess of Jupiter, a short. Yeah, uh, yeah. Great. It's you know, I I can't tell you that there are no planets or moons that uh, would wouldn't know that there are none that would allow you to to jump a hundred feet in the air, but uh, they would have to be really really small moons and there are some small moons but i'm not sure that there's anything that small
And correct me right. if I'm wrong also, but his legs would be demolished, right? Like once he lands some of these jumps, mm. I was really concerned about that. His knees. E- that's an interesting question. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, I'm that that's better than my knowledge of anatomy will permit <laughs> me to answer. So. Unless he lands softly because there's less gravity, mm-hmm. so the pull down is not as strong. Mm. Perhaps. Uh, yeah, I believe. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, once again, movie's flawless. <laughs> Thing checks out. Uh-huh. We're back, baby. Yep. Um, okay, so what about uh, the the sandstorms? There was a couple scenes where, you know, kind of all of a sudden there's just a uh, like waves, like avalanche, uh, tsunami-looking sandstorms on Mars. So is that a, uh, a commonality up there? And does that, you know, prove to be problematic for our, our rovers and such? Yeah, that that's for real, and it can be problematic. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that back in the days when many people thought that Mars might be uh, inhabited, telescopes from Earth could actually see that parts of the planet seemed to change color over the course of the year, being dark at one point and light at another. And people said, "Oh, what what changes color over the year? I got it. It's vegetation." Well, it turns out it's it's planetary scale dust storms, and we actually experienced those when the Mer rovers were running. You you basically don't do much until they clear up because you know, particularly for a mission that's run on solar power, you're mm. you're in trouble when you get a big oh. big uh, sandstorm. So that part's real. Okay, so you don't want to be stuck in one of those. You're you're pretty screwed. Yeah, that looked dangerous. And I'm glad you mentioned the solar power because that was another huge thing in this movie. These ships sail on light. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when I say ships, I mean everything from a huge pirate ship looking thing flying and then also kind of a Star Wars like pod racer, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. who, which can really book it. <laughs> um, so do do we have that type of capability i mean uh what what kind of uh you know solar powered vehicles are we are we messing with well i mean there are such thing as solar powered vehicles and and they work uh whether they can fuel a starship in real time is is uh, uh that's a problem um, I, I must say, in terms of their their sort of arsenal of weapons and that, what I found mo- more interesting than anything else was here is these civilizations that have starships, they have cannons, they have all this stuff, so they dress like Roman centurions and battle with knives. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. There was kind of uh, both like ancient technology and then super futuristic technology mm. at the same time. Yeah, no, no, that... Uh, I, I didn't understand that, truly. Yeah. <laughs> like, nobody's okay. got cell phones. Somehow. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Speaking of cell phones, the film, I don't know, I don't mean to jump to the end, but it was dedicated to the memory of Steve Jobs. Yeah. Do you guys notice that? Oh, that jump out to you? No. Yeah. Oh, no, I did not notice yeah. that. I think I passed out right when it ended. <laughs> <laughs> I think right when that title came up that said John Carter of Mars, I was like, okay, well, I'm done. I don't yeah. know. Now, now they just titled the movie something else, so I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> right. May I ask a question to Dr. Andy? Any and all questions, please. Okay. So 
I had mentioned earlier that they did find ice on Mars. Now, Dr. Andy, bear in mind, I have a BA in theater and just a general interest in, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So this is coming from a complete <laughs> idiot's point of view. Um, so is it possible, then, that John Carter, like, traveled through a wormhole and went back in time to when perhaps Mars was able to be inhabited by life as we know it? Or is oh, that that's a, a, a great question, oh, actually. Yes. I, 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 I mean that, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, because you're right, because it brings up something that Percival Lowell argued in his books, you know, 130 years ago, and we now know to be true, and that is that in the past, Mars had been warmer and wetter Yes. than it is now and it, and it has in a statistical sense dried up through time so yeah you you could say well maybe let's john carter went back in time for four billion years and uh there were occasional lakes on lakes on mars um the problem then is uh where does this civilization come from because you mm. know four billion years ago even if there were life on Mars, it was probably bacteria. Oh. oh. Okay. Oh, well, if NASA is well, hiring, let them know. Right. <laughs> there is a gal. <laughs> Who's interested in wormholes? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's one of the weir weirdest things in, in, the, in the book. He doesn't even, uh, you know, the, the first part of the movie is sort of a backstory that doesn't to any particular degree exist in the book. In the book, he's just kind of sitting there and all of a sudden he's sitting and he's this odd place that has these uh, eggs of monsters uh, oh, and yeah. he never explains it. Oh yeah, and what so, happened to those things? Uh, Hatchlings. Oh, yeah. yeah, well those turn out to, they will be essentially the pack horses of the Tharks. You know, they show a couple scenes where oh. they have the adults and they're 30 feet high and that. But yeah, in, in the book, they, they explain that, that they have these hatcheries where they do hatch, um, you know, the, these animals. And of course, very nicely, you know, one of them becomes John Carter's friend and protector, like his uh, loyal dog. Oh, okay. are these the ones that um, in that other scene, in that like Coliseum-like scene uh -huh. with the white... Oh, the polar bear the, type things. Yeah, the white, white, white apes. The white, yeah. white apes, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that what they grow up into? No, no, the white apes are another sort of population of, of you know, call them humanoids for one or some, something else. Yeah, in the book there's these four populations. Oh. There's the Tharks, there's the bad humans, which show up in, in abundance in the book. They're the white apes, which are bad, but you just see them from time to time. And then there's the helium people who are good. Um, but yeah, no, the, the funny thing about the movie is you know nothing about white apes, and then they just show up in the Coliseum. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's nuts. Yeah, it must have been tough to trap them, by the way. I was thinking about yeah. that. <laughs> I've got a question about everybody with uh, bleeding blue blood. Mm, good question. Yeah, and this is my question. My question is, what, like, okay, so if I have heard also um, degree in theater and um, <laughs> vaguely know what uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson looks like, 
um, so I know nothing. But um, I remember somebody telling me at one point that like, oh, our blood's actually blue and then it oxidizes when your skin's broken and it turns red. I've heard this. Okay, so that is that A, what happens on Earth? Um, I don't know, I live here. And then on Mars, is it blue because the atmosphere is different? So is that how they justify blood being blue on Mars? Or is this just a completely no, our, different our, our blood is red because we have red blood cells that contain actually an oxygen binding protein called hemoglobin and it's it's red so your your uh, your blood is actually red That's now really if you if you look at some crabs you'll find they do have blue blood because their oxygen is transported by a different protein called myoglobin so mm. uh, it is possible to have blue blood uh, some organisms have it on Earth, so you know if the Tharks had it, God bless them. You know. Ah. Oh, I always right. knew there was something weird about those goddamn blue-blooded crabs. <laughs> 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 Little bastards. Yeah, they talk about blue bloods in Manhattan too, but that's another story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a different podcast. <laughs> um, so wait, I wanted to piggyback on the the past of Mars that Carolyn was bringing up. It's like you were saying that before it was warmer, it was wetter. So what changed? What has happened since then that now I guess it's like more difficult to locate the ice or locate the water? Yeah, that, that's a good question. It, it, it turns out one of the things that we've learned, and, and I've known this really since the 60s, uh, some of the early orbiters of Mars showed basically river channels. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that gave rise to the idea, you know, the modern idea that maybe Mars was once wetter. And, you know, the, the various rovers have found chemical and physical evidence for water in the past. So it's pretty clear that early on, at least at some times, Mars had standing and running water. Now, it may not be that it had water for a billion years. It may have had water for a million years and then had a 50 million years when there was none and then water again. Uh, there's a lot mm -hmm. of uncertainty there. But uh, through time, A, Mars lost its atmosphere, and so the, the only way you can make Mars, Mars warm is through greenhouse gases. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just too far from the sun for the sun to do the job by itself. So as Mars loses its atmosphere, uh, some of it uh, going into chemical combination with with uh, sediment, some of it just being fired off into space, uh, its possibility of actually uh, being warm declines to, you know, near zero. Wow. wow. Okay. So we're in trouble, basically. We, we, the, the terraforming of Mars doesn't seem very likely from what you're, from what you're telling me. Well, you know, I, I know people who would argue the case in the other direction. Um, you know, there are ways of making oxygen from sediments we know exist on Mars. Uh, as has already been said, there is not only water ice at the poles, there are these sort of glaciers at the poles, but there is ice within sediments and surface rocks through you know at least the mid mid latitudes so th there are ways of 
maybe changing Mars. I wouldn't say it's impossible. I'd say it's doggone expensive and <laughs> you know, you don't get much change from your trillion dollar bill. So, you know, I think there if we're ever going to do that, it's pretty clear that the first people who go to Mars probably aren't coming back. And and yet I I know you know, Mars scientists who would jump at the chance to go to Mars and be the first human on Mars. I, I'm not one of those people. I would rather live to a ripe old age here and watch them on TV. But, uh, uh, you know, there are real enthusiasts. Well, listen, I it feels like we're just starting our hang sesh, uh, but unfortunately we are out of time. Um, I have one final question, and this is for all three of you. Can anybody tell me what the ninth ray is or what it does? I asked Adam the same question yeah. last night. Um, Dr. Andy, you go first. <laughs> well, I, I thought it might be Ray Charles, but I don't think that's the right answer. <laughs> I vote Ray Charles. Oh, my gosh. I think that's it. Doctor and comedian. <laughs> I think that's correct. Uh, my favorite Ray, the ninth Ray, oh. Ray Charles. Um, listen, uh, I, I thank you all for for watching this movie, this great classic <laughs> film, and for being on the podcast today. Um, Adam, Carolyn, Schmab. Obviously, people need to follow you guys, check you guys out. Uh, where where can people do that? On uh, Instagram, yep. Twitter at Schmab S C H M A B. Mm-hmm. Um, and watch our music videos on YouTube. Yeah. We're available for bookings, shows, <laughs> bar mitzvahs, massages. funerals. Not massages. <laughs> Great. Well, that sounds awesome. Thank you guys for being on the show. And, uh, and Dr. Andy, uh, obviously people need to buy all of your books and have them on their shelves so that they know what to do for the future of the human race. But if there's anything you want to tell them about, now, now's the time. Well, uh, a th- First, thanks for having me on. This this was a, a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, um, I'm too old to be on Twitter and things like that. But uh, there are a couple of books out there. Most recently, uh, A Brief History of Earth, Four Billion Years in Eight Chapters, which... Uh, is uh, available for thoughtful holiday giving, you know. Yes, or just birthdays or yes. whatever. Um, I've I've only heard great things. I'm ordering the book for sure. Um, and and talking to you is a delight. Same with you, Adam and Carolyn. Thank right you guys so you. much. All right. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Bye, y'all. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Bad Science is a Seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. The executive producer is Brett Kushner, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver, but it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.